Welcome to this episode of the Voices Heard Lives Empowered mini-series by Power. On this episode we were joined by Barbara and Jennifer who work for Juno Women's Aid in Nottinghamshire. I think it's important to let you know that although we talk about services in Nottinghamshire, Women's Aid is a national charity and the things that we talk about are relevant to women and children who find themselves victims of domestic abuse wherever they are. Stay listening at the end for more information on how to contact Women's Aid and other organisations that we discuss in the podcast. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Barbara, can you tell us a little bit about the services that Juno Women's Aid provide? Okay, so so the services we run, we've got our, our 24-hour, 365 days a year domestic abuse helpline. So anyone can phone that if you are going through domestic abuse, if you're a survivor of domestic abuse, if you are another service who are working with someone, if you are a professional who wants some support or information about how to help someone um, in their situation... That runs alongside the pet fostering project. So some there are many barriers to women and families leaving abusive relationships, and one of them can be they don't want to leave their pet behind because it's not unknown for perpetrators to use pets as ransom or to hurt them or to neglect them. Um, so sometimes women won't leave the property because refuges won't take dogs or cats or any pets. Um, so what we have is pet fostering project. So we have lots of volunteers. These aren't my volunteers, actually. We've got another whole coordinator who just runs this project. And she gets and sources volunteers who will look after a dog or a cat or a parrot or whatever the pet is for as many months as it needs to be while the woman and, and maybe the children, if she's got some, um, can get secure accommodation where they can take their pet. And that just removes a barrier for people being able to leave their relationship I think that's fantastic and it's so important that it's highlighted um when I've worked with clients who've been in domestic abuse situations those practical questions uh, they can be a barrier to somebody leaving their abuser and it's good that people know about it because lots of you know people don't know about it and then uh, so we need to spread the word so it's great that that's going to get a shout out on this podcast so obviously we're talking about Juno Women's Aid in Nottinghamshire but are there similar services provided by Women's Aid across the country? Well, shall I just talk you through first what we do offer at Juno? So we've got the, the Helpline and the Pets Project in the city of Nottingham. So the Helpline is for the whole region. Within the city, we have an adult service called the SAS service. The SAS is just brand new, you see, to us. We only started this in April. We had two services that ran to support women and we've just amalgamated them into one service to, to give a better offer so that women coming into this because what we used to have was um, one service for lower risk women and then another service for high risk women and if women went from high risk to low risk or low risk to high risk they'd get a different worker so we wanted to stop that so we've got this one new brand new service called SAS which is brand new and it kind of just started as lockdown happened so um, it's been quite quite interesting times so that service works with women who um have they are either referred to us through the police say they've had a police call out or it could be that they're referred by the health visitor or the school or they can self-refer so we offer one-to-one emotional and some practical support we run 
um, courses. We run a course called the Freedom Programme, which is a 10-week course looking at different aspects of how abusers abuse, what tools they use. It's like a, an abuser has a toolkit, so they might use uh, money as a power to economically abuse someone so they can't leave and they haven't got any personal autonomy because they haven't got access to their own money. They can't maybe access the bank account. Sometimes perpetrators take loans out in women's names without them knowing, leave them in tens of thousands of debt. So they might, that's just an example of economic abuse. Another aspect of abuse that you look at on the course might be the bad father. So someone who pretends they're a good father keeps telling everyone they're a good father, but actually, really, if you abuse the mother of the children, you're not a good father, you know? So they might sort of use the children, a bit like the pets, as ransom, saying, if you leave me, the social care will take your children away, you're a crap mother, uh, you're nothing without me, all that sort of thing. Sure. Another week on the Freedom Programme, we might look at um, the head worker. So that's a bit like gaslighting, how people get in your head and put you down and just kind of grind women down until they just don't know what's up and down, what is, if black's white or white's black, you know, they, they're so confused, they, they haven't got any space for action, any time to think things through for themselves. So it's a really interesting course, and women can access that if they're beyond a, an abusive relationship, or indeed if they're still going through it, if it's safe for them to access. So we also work with the MARAC, which is the highest risk women who come in through the police and there is a that's the multi-agencies risk assessment committee that happens every other week with the highest risk identified survivors of domestic abuse they can be male survivors as well actually but we only work with female survivors and in the city we also have a children's service where we run the stronger families program which is a therapeutic group work program for children and young people so up to teenage, up to sort of 16 years will work, where we run a 10-week program. We take children out of school for a morning, one morning a week, and we go through a therapeutic recovery program so to help them realise that the experiences they've had are not their fault because the abusers don't take responsibility and they will often blame mum or they'll blame the children. If you haven't left your toys out, for example, I wouldn't be cross and therefore I wouldn't have hurt your mum. Or, or you, or smashed up the house. So children often feel they're to blame, or partly to blame. They can often feel confused because they love their dad, but then they are scared of their dad, and that doesn't marry up inside them. Quite often, dads will put mums down to children. Um, you know, your mum's useless, she's stupid, you know, that sort of thing. So children are, are very traumatised and confused. So those are the young people we work with. In a small group setting, it's really a successful program. We also have one-to-one -one workers who will do one-to-one -one sessions with children and young people who perhaps have done stronger families or aren't suitable for group work or just need additional support. So we have a worker who does that, and someone else um, who does some work with children who've been exposed to weapons, knives, or other weapons as well. So they've got um, their own needs. We have a, a refuge as well in the in the city, which doesn't take pets, but it does take children. Um, and in the county, we have more or less exactly the same, although the children's service doesn't run stronger families in quite the same way because of the nature of the county. It's more spread apart, so it's harder to transport children. So we work mainly in schools or in one-to-one -one with young people. 
And we've just started new service to work with young people who, I said earlier, are going through the court system, uh, civil courts, not criminal court, where it's going to be mainly about contact with the perpetrator. The perpetrator isn't always, of course, the child's biological father. It can be stepdad, in which case things are, are slightly different. But um, So you probably wouldn't go through court with that, but you might do. And we, oh, we have um, teen advocates, yippers they're called, and they work with young women in their own abusive relationships, same as the city actually, and went through that. We have a county SAS who do the same as the, the city, offer uh, one-to-one emotional support to women and some practical supports, and we have some dispersed refuge accommodation, so not a single refuge, but uh, different um, houses and flats which are used as safe houses and refuges in, uh, dotted around the county. Um, Tom, the only other thing to um, ha- add is that we're developing um, a hub. What we found um, over time is that having individual phone numbers for each service and individual referral forms, as we've got bigger, that's become a little bit complicated for service users and professionals trying to refer in. So we will be developing a hub where there will be one referral form, one phone number and one email address to refer into all of our services. Um, And once that's up and running, we'll inform all of our partners. That sounds great. Um, So just bringing it all together, so there's one point of contact for all the services. That's right. Great, great. I mean, it's so good to hear about all the services that are available to women and children who need it. Obviously, domestic abuse is all-encompassing, and the list of things to consider when a person wants to leave an abusive partner must be really overwhelming. Uh, But from the list of services you just gave, I can't think of anything that hasn't been taken care of within that. It must be really encouraging for women in that situation to know that those services are there if they need them, and they do need to get out. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they do all know. Sure. So can we do a shout-out for our helpline number? Yes, please. That'd be great. 0808-800-0340 and that's available day and night and if you want to refer in you can you can phone the helpline and they will let you know how to refer in as well and of course don't forget the volunteers as well which i did mention at the beginning which is not really a service but it is they do support our services Definitely. And I think charity organisations like Women's Aid and Power, um, they're so well served by the volunteers. They're, they're amazing, an amazing resource to have. Yes, a lot of our volunteers are survivors themselves and that really is a good motivation for them to want to reach out and help other women going through similar things because they feel they've got something to offer, which you might find the same at Power as well, that people who've been through had a certain problem, feel they've got something to offer other people, which is very true. They have. Yeah, um, in Power we talk quite a lot about the advocacy journey, um, starting with us as advocates being a voice for somebody who perhaps isn't able to speak up for themselves. And then the idea is that in time that person will be able to speak up for themselves and wouldn't necessarily need us to advocate for them. Uh, And that can eventually go full circle with people who've used our services volunteering with us to help others. Um, And I think having been through something yourself, it puts you in a much better place to empathise with others. I guess that's the same for survivors who then volunteer with Women's Aid. Yeah, yeah. Could we talk a little bit about what domestic abuse actually is? Because I think um, 
a lot of people that don't work within health and social care or within organisations like Women's Aid, they might not have a real impression of how um, what a wide definition um, domestic abuse covers. Yeah, we, it's always traditionally been called domestic violence and then people, we now try and call it domestic abuse so it encompasses all forms of abuse because we just call it violence and people just think, you know, it's about hitting and hurting someone physically, which it isn't at all. So domestic abuse is kind of the gradual erosion of someone's autonomy through a variety of means. Most abusers, well, basically, if you go on a first date and someone punches you in the face, you're not going on a second date. Abuse builds up gradually, yeah? So at first, abusers can be very charming. They often come across as very plausible um, and very nice and caring. But it can start with warning signs a bit like um, constantly messaging someone. So say you've just met someone and they message you and, oh, uh, you know, it's lovely seeing you last night, you know, and uh, and says nice things and that's fine. But there can be a point where the messages flip over into becoming abuse and control, you know. So it might be things like... Oh, you're going out with your friends tonight? What? Don't you want to see me? I thought we were having a good time together. So that, so that the, the, um, the victim, shall we say, or the survivor, as we like to call them, the women who, who survived these situations, of course, um, sort of starts to doubt their own judgment. Oh, sh- should I not be seeing my friends? Should should I be spending all my time with this person? And and you know they're still being lovely and nice. So they think, oh well, okay. Well, I won't go see my friends tonight. I'll, I'll I'll stay in with you, or I'll go and make sure that you know that our relationship's more important than anything else. And it it can just sort of start to chip away at someone's feeling of, of they've got control of their own life. Yeah. So that and they begin to doubt their own judgment. This is very often how it starts. Nearly always, in my experience. And so over time. The abuse builds up, so it'll just start off with, oh, don't you want to see me? Or nearly always, the first thing they do is, um, is, is know, what's the word, communication, I want to say. It's about being able to have your own, your own life outside of the relationship. So they might do things like um, make it really uncomfortable for your family or friends to come round, if you're living together, to, to come round. Yeah? They make the atmosphere a bit toxic so that people don't want to visit. They might be really nasty about about your friends um, so that you feel uncomfortable going to see your friends because they're like, oh, your friends are a load of... No, I'm going to swear, so I won't. Um, (laughs) um, I I mean, I've met lots of women in my time working with Gina Women's Aid. One sticks in my mind as she said she went for a coffee with a friend and she was with her friend about three quarters of an hour and in that time period she had over 50 texts from her abuser saying, where are you? Why don't you want to be with me? Why having a coffee with Karen? Why? I've just made that up. You know, don't you love me? And it was just non-stop. So it's just, it's just no point going out. It's every time you go out, that happens. So you end up staying in. So your support mechanism, your support system shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until you're just eroded away. I met a woman once when I was running Stronger Families and she hadn't heard her own name for several years because the abuser, the dad, told all the children, I mean, I still can't believe this is true, but it was, he made the children call her slag, not mum. And he that's what he called her. And so that was her name. 
when you're in that situation, you you can't see where you're going to go or how you're going to get out of it. And some some women don't even know they're in an abusive situation, or you'll meet them you'll meet them after say there's been a violent incident, and you'll say, well, when did the abuse start? And they'll say, oh. You know, he first time he hit me was whenever. But if you go back to the beginning of a relationship, you can see it building up. But they were just unaware that that was abuse, a sort of gaslighting type thing, because it's so slow that you you know you sometimes you don't see it. Uh, so we need to build awareness about the coercive control aspect, which is now a criminal offence, of course, since 2016. That became a criminal offence to coercively control or gaslight someone. Hard to prove, actually. But we can come back to proving that in a bit, actually, if we come back. Yeah, so where do women go? How do they get away if they're told they're useless, they're pointless, they haven't got access to any money? They um, quite often, the violence often builds up. So not many abusers start with physical violence. They'll start with all the coercive control and all the emotional abuse, and then over time the violence starts. I met a woman once... um, and she was a primary school teacher, and he had never physically hurt her, really, not in a sort of punchy way, but she had had 20 years of emotional abuse. And she said to me, what was she supposed to do? Phone the police and say her husband's being horrible to her again. She just did not know how to get out of it. One of the things, what the final straw for her was, he started pushing her at the top of the stairs and then catching her so that she thought she was going to fall downstairs, and then apparently she did that a few times. But she was so much upset. She was like, I'm a professional woman. I should know better. But I just didn't know he told me this and that. And it just obviously got in her head so much that she didn't know what to do. Domestic abuse can affect anybody. It's not a particular community or socioeconomic group. Anybody can be affected by domestic abuse. The abuse can vary depending on the tactics of the perpetrator. But it can happen to anyone. And as for trying to prove, so, you know, if someone attacks you physically and you end up in hospital with broken bones and bruises, that's quite easy, isn't it? Or you phone the police and they come round and he's strangling the woman. That's quite easy to see. But when it is the emotional and coercive control, how do you prove that? You know, because how do you make the criminal side of that sort of work stick? So... We recommend that women phone our helpline and tell us about it because we will make notes, we will keep records and that can be used. Um, They tell their GP or their health visitor if they've got one, tell someone at school what's going on, just so some other professionals and some other people can note down what they've been told and and then we can, hopefully the woman can use that if she ever needs to take things to court. Part of that trying to protect and support women is by informing others, informing your GPs um, yeah. and anybody else really. And that builds up a network, but also builds up evidence um, for when yeah. women do want to report it. Because we, uh, at Juno Women's Age, you know, it, it's very much an advisory service. So we advise women uh, and it's their journey. And so it, it happens at their pace. Um, and we just give them tools and um, advice to be able to work through that journey and hopefully at the end of it come out of the abuse. Sure. So do you find that that decision about when to leave the abusive partner, does that usually have to come from uh, the victim themselves? Yes, generally. 
sometimes it's forced if social care involved and social care might say you need to not be living with this abuser because that's bad for your children yes yeah or if it's a high risk case if if it's high risk and has to go to mara the multi-agency risk assessment conference then it can be taken out of women's hands but on the whole it is safer um, apart from anything else, apart from not wanting to control women, it is safer that it's the woman's journey because a lot yeah. of women manage the risks themselves. They, they know where the risks are better than anybody else and so they know the right time to report and to leave. And so it, that's why it's best to get women to make the decisions about when and how they um, leave that abuse. That was brought home very clearly to me, but sort of quite recent. I hadn't been working with Juno very long, so I was more naive than I am now. And I saw a woman who hadn't left an abusive relationship, and I said, "Oh, you should, you know, why don't you leave him?" And she's like, "Yeah, but when he's in the house, I know where he is." And I thought, "Of course you do, because yeah. if you kick someone out or you move, you don't know where they are, yeah, and you yeah. know they're angry. And women are most at risk when they leave the relationship. I mean, two to three, up to three women a week are killed." normal times by their abuser or ex-partner and nearly always it's as they leave because it's about power control it's not about them losing control and hitting someone or smashing up the house or whatever it's about them controlling them so the minute the victim the survivor takes back some personal autonomy and control the abusers can't stand it and they'll ramp up that is a really dangerous time so it does need managing carefully and so, you know, when she said that, I know where he is. I thought, of course you do. It makes absolute sense. So you hear a lot of victim blaming in society, don't you? Well, you should have left him. Why didn't you leave him? Um, well, there are many, many good reasons why not. And we need to be really careful about victim blaming. There's always, nearly always, a really good reason for it. That's a really interesting point that you make. Um, I mean, I guess the emotional reaction from a family member or someone who's outside that relationship would be to intervene and to make it stop. I've never heard it put that way before, but it kind of makes total sense that the victim themselves, although they are a victim, is also the best person to know how to keep themselves safe. Sure. Yeah, you're talking to them, so you know they're they're alive, um, and they've been managing the situation. And you know, back to the control thing, you come across uh, survivors who say, "Oh, and he smashed the house up." But when you unpick it, what they did was they smashed up your form of communication. So the woman's phone will be smashed, the TV, perhaps her laptop, tablet, whatever, all of his methods of communication, his phone, his tablet, they're fine. It's hers that have been smashed. And it really is more often than not phones and things that go because they do not like women having that autonomy of communication. Sure. So it's a funny thing. It, it, they don't lose control and smash the place up. It's very controlled violence. Another another example is they're not... It, it, people blame alcohol or drugs. Maybe for the violence it might trigger it a bit, but it's certainly not the cause. There's plenty of people who drink who aren't abusive and vice versa, um, and they're not beating people up at the pub. Well, they might be, but, <laughs> you know, they don't tend <laughs> yeah. to sort of punch a work colleague or whatever. It's, they wait till they get home. So they're not losing control. They're controlling it, and they're choosing their victim of who they're going to abuse, sure. which is how they, and lots of them sound so plausible. 
um, to to schools or police or, or other agencies because they come across. It's almost like wearing a mask. We, we, we go through that in the uh, Freedom Programme as well, like putting on a front to other people. Yeah. So are there any factors that could make a woman more at risk of abuse, uh, kind of like vulnerabilities and that sort of thing? I think there are, yeah. I mean, I saw a study, quite a recent study, that was talking about people with low self-esteem are a bit more vulnerable to domestic abuse, and that made sense, doesn't it, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, but other than that, not really. Well, being a woman. Yes, yeah. Maybe you're number one. Uh, being a younger woman, probably, because I think most, you know, you can you can sort of break down age categories and um, so I, I think sort of um, early 20s to early 30s probably your most or sort of late teens maybe to late 20s would be most vulnerable time but um, but beyond that I mean it still happens you know women in the 30s 40s 50s obviously some of those women have been in abusive relationships for all their lives but it may not be violent it might be more the emotional side and they don't even really recognize it for what it is yeah, sorry, Jen. <laughs> I think um, w- one of the other vulnerabilities as well is when when you don't have many choices, we get a lot of women who have no recourse to public funds um, or, or who are on spousal visas and things like that, and their choices are very limited. Um, their perpetrators also um, can... Um, report them for not having the right immigration status, they're relying on them to apply for their indefinite leave to remain, um, and so that's added vulnerabilities. Um, yeah, yes, well. that, that's a really good point, and disabled women as well, of course, Yeah. or women who take medication and the abuser will withhold medication and or not care for them if they're their carer. Mm. Um, yeah, another aspect is, and you come across this quite a lot, and it's come across, I've come across it just in the last week, is women who retaliate, self-defence, and men are arrested as the perpetrator because they've defended themselves. The, 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 they got the, fi- the final straw broke. Again, early in my journey, I've got so many interesting stories. I met a woman who had been arrested, and she'd spent the night in jail, or in the police station or whatever, or so, several hours anyway, but what had happened was her perpetrator grabbed her by the hair, pushed her head onto the gas cooker and threatened to turn on the gas. The, to her two toddlers were in the kitchen at the same time. So what would anyone do if you're about to be, have your head burned? She kicked him in the face, you know, so she's bent backwards and she kicks out with a foot, breaks his jaw. She's now a perpetrator of domestic abuse. But actually, she was defending her own life, yeah? I mean, eventually it untangled itself, but you, we see a lot of figures about how many men are victims, but quite a lot of those male victims. Not all, of course. They, yeah. That's what's happened. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it, that the law identifies it in that way? I, I mean, you referred earlier to coercive control, and I'm really sorry, I, I can't remember the name of the lady involved, but there was that famous case a few years ago where a lady actually killed a husband and went to prison for it. Uh, but when it was unravelled, it turned out that she'd suffered a lifetime of abuse. Um, and that led up to the point, you know, that she killed him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that final straw, isn't it? That kind of that breaking point where you just can tolerate no more. Yeah. Um, and women, I met another woman as well who um, 
she was washing up and she'd had 20 years of this perpetrator and he was poking her in the back. I hate it when people poke me. And there was a sharp knife. She was washing up a sharp knife and she picked up, turned around and stabbed him with it. And so obviously she was she was arrested. But again, it was it was sorted out. And then they, they let her go as being um, exactly that. It was 20 years of, of non-stop aggression. Sure. But I'll tell you what else. Women who use weapons are treated far more harshly by the criminal justice system than men. It could just be a sharp object or a glass or a mug or something. Because if they've used a weapon, they're treated really harshly. And I don't think that's fair at all. That's really interesting. Um, so because a lot of men are bigger than their partners, they're able to abuse them in a way which is less incriminating in the eyes of the law. Absolutely. A man could physically, I mean, my husband, he's lovely, so he doesn't, but he could stop me going out of the house without hurting me just by filling the doorway. I could not do that to him. Mm. Sure. Yeah, physically, I just couldn't do it. So, sure. yeah. So do you do you have women and children that use the service multiple times, you know, that would come back again? I think, like Jen said earlier, some women just, it takes them a time to work out how they're going to leave that relationship. You know, some women do want to try again and, you know, they think that the abuse might stop if, if they do something different and it's a bit of a learning curve to realise that that's not going to happen. But you have to let them learn that for themselves um, occasionally a perpetrator who really can see that they've been abusive and really want to change can change you know of course they can do that but they have to do that themselves they have to recognize that they are abusive understand that they need to make changes in their own lives um, and they need to take that step no one can do it for them I, I, I think I think as well um, in terms of repeat referrals yeah we have very persistent perpetrators. Um, we have women that have come into refuge, they have relocated, they've even changed their names sometimes, and perpetrators still track them down. Yeah. And perpetrators can be very charming. So along with the charm, along with the fear, um, because they found them again and they think they're going to find me no matter what, yeah, threats that they're making not just to you but to your loved ones women do enter into relationships again because of that and then it gets back to crisis stage so it's often not about the woman um which is what you know we tell our funders when we're reporting back to them that we do get these repeats but it isn't that that those women aren't using the tools and the information that we've given them it's that perpetrators are persistent. Yeah. It is so shocking when you hear some of the length the perpetrators will go to, to to abuse a victim. Yeah, they can move up from Cornwall, Devon, and they'll find them in Nottingham. Yeah. Even with all the steps we take. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, but yeah, occasionally we'll get a woman who will go from one abusive relationship to another. Yeah. I mean, sure. that does happen, of course. Yeah. It does. But again, you know, like what Barbara was saying, that's about a woman's self-esteem and, and confidence. Yeah. And perpetrators yeah. can spot that. Serial yeah. perpetrators can spot that. Oh, yeah. that's a vulnerable person. Yeah. That, I, I, that, that will be a person that's easy to control. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about how things have been in the last three months because of the coronavirus lockdown now. 
have you seen an increase in the referrals since the lockdown began? Um, and if so, could we talk a little bit about the reasons why that might have happened? So there has been a big increase in calls to our domestic abuse helpline, hasn't there, Jen? Um, I think yeah. on some weeks it's been like a 75% increase and in other weeks it's been like a 20% increase. So it is, yeah. it's varied. Um, but yes, a massive increase. Even though I saw recently there's been fewer calls to the police, but that, that probably is the same story, actually, about not wanting the police around your house. So, of course, if you're in lockdown with an abuser, things are not going to be, you know, you can't even go to the shops. I mean, you can a bit, but, you know, do you know what I mean? You know, you can't get out. They're, they're, they're going to be more frustrated. Definitely, being locked down. yeah. And, I mean, abusers are all about power and control. So if they're being told they can't go out, they're not going to like that. And I've heard many stories of abusive abusers who just ignoring the lockdown, essentially, because they think the rules don't apply for them. That's interesting. So the kind of psychology of the abuser can go beyond just controlling the victim. And it's like they don't want to be controlled by the government even. Certainly. I think that's definitely within the psychology of your average abuser profile. Sure. Sure. So how have you adapted to working with people um, now that social distancing and all the other restrictions have been put in place? And we've, we've taken on, so some of the staff whose main job is kind of running groups are now working in the helpline. So we've got additional staff covering shifts in the helpline. We've got more staff on each shift of the helpline. Um, we've had to sort of get a new phone system going so that more people can work remotely. Because before, people would be physically in the helpline. And then out of hours, you'd only have one person out of hours, but, you you know, everyone's working remotely. So I had to adapt a phone system to so that lots of people can be working. Um, other than that, the other services are just doing phone support rather than face-to-face support. And all groups have stopped. But sure. if lockdown carries on for loads longer, we might have to start doing some groups online somehow. I don't know, but... Hopefully, hopefully we can get back into training rooms and, and, and the office again at some point soon. Sure. But just to confirm, the, the refuge is still open as normal. Yeah. And Excellent. First, first few weeks, we're still accepting women into refuge as well. Um, so we've had some people arrive. There was no, there was only contact, phone contact from staff. But, and then they went into a staff being there twice a week, I think. And now I think a member of staff's going in every day. But they've all got PPE, so they've got sort of masks and gloves and sprays and anti-backs and things like that. And we've had loads of fantastic donations from supporters, food, uh, toiletries, gifts for children, toys, all sorts of things. So just to make lockdown easier for the families that we know and women in refuge. Um, Yeah, so refuge is still happening. That's brilliant, and I hope that would encourage women to come forward if they need help. Ask for it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so are there any ways that women who are living in lockdown with their perpetrator can get in touch a bit more secretly? Jen, um, where are we with the live chat? Um, the, our live chat is still being developed, so part of us being in lockdown is that we're we're looking at other ways that we can support women, but you know, 100% of our services are still running. So use the helpline number. If you can't call, there's also a helpline email address that you can use. Yeah. Um, so that's helpline at junowomensaid.org.uk. Um, 
if you're struggling to find any means of contact by contacting us through our helpline, I would suggest trying to make contact with a neighbour, somebody else who could make contact with us to try and help you by, by any means necessary. But if you're really, really in danger, please do ring the police. Yeah, ring the police if you've been hurt. I know we have a Facebook page and Twitter, um, and yeah. I know women have contacted us through Facebook messaging or, you know, putting a message, you know, they've seen a post and they've said, I need help, and then someone's got in touch with them. I mean, that's not the ideal way of getting in touch with us. No. And it won't, you know, and it may not be noticed for a while, you know, whereas the email and the phone calls obviously are monitored. Um, no. But it's... If all you've got is Facebook, you could do that. The other thing as well, um, you know, Barbara talked earlier about the high percentage of increase that we've had in um, phone calls. Please do not get put off if you um, are asked to leave a message. Please leave a message. Yeah. Somebody will get back to you. Yeah, yeah, good point. It does sometimes come up saying it's the answer machine, but leave that message. You will get a phone call back. That's great. That's that's good to know. Calls, it doesn't mean we don't want your call. Still call. Thanks very much. I think there's some great advice there. Um, so once people have used the service, can they stay in touch and keep coming back? Yes. Brilliant. Yeah, so the average um, journey, I think, is about three months, perhaps, Jen, 12 weeks of Yeah, about that. Like, on yeah, average, yeah. On average. It could be more, could be less. Yeah. Um, some women go from having from being high risk and getting support there to low risk to then getting support as a family with their children. So you can be with us going through different services at different times because like the Stronger Families is, is um, therapeutic. So it's about the end after the relationship and about recovering. So you, you have to not still be in that relationship to access Stronger Families. So some women, you know, go from, through, from the helpline, high risk, low risk, Stronger Families. So for women who are potentially going to be leaving their social connections and their family behind, it must be great to have access to that new community and that, that new support network. That's that's right. And our survivor um, group, like I say, any woman who's working with us or has recently stopped being one of our women can access that. We meet sort of every four to six weeks and either consult about stuff that Juno wants to consult about or we will just eat cake and drink tea and have some fun and share stories and do a bit of peer support, that sort of thing, um, or mixture of all of those things. Um, but obviously that's not happening at the moment, unfortunately. No. Um, then some of our survivors end up becoming volunteers as well, but we do we do need a year from being out of service before you can apply to be a volunteer, just so there's a bit of clear space. That's brilliant. Um, I want to thank you so much, Barbara and Jen, for coming on the podcast. I don't think I've got any other questions, but is there anything that you want to get across to our listeners before we wrap things up? Um, just obviously the num phone numbers. And, and if you are a man, then do contact our partner organisation, Equation, because they run a men's service for male victims of domestic abuse. So to get across, there is a men's service, our helpline number, you can email, you can a dire straits message on Facebook or something. Phone the police if you're in immediate physical danger and tell as many people as you can about what's going on. Thanks again to Jen and to Barbara for coming on the podcast. 
I just wanted to clarify, uh, we talk about a service with the acronym SAS, which Gino Women's Aid offer in Nottinghamshire. Um, that stands for Survivor Advocacy Support Service. Um, so just that main uh, national line again that you can contact if you are um, a woman that needs advice or support about domestic abuse. And that number is 0808 800 The Juno Women's Aid website address is junowomensaid.org.uk or lowercase. If you're a man suffering from domestic abuse, in Nottinghamshire you can call the local domestic abuse helpline and that's 0115 960 5556. If you're a man living outside of Nottinghamshire, you can call the Domestic Abuse Helpline operated by Men's Advice Line. That's 0808 801 0327. Thanks for listening.